This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, I'm Matt Cholly and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Today's episode dedicated to Peter, who sent in an email. Morning, Matt. Big fan of the show and not sure what all the fuss is about, re your face. Is it a red jacket for Labour, blue shirt for Conservatives and a yellow tie for Lib Dems? He's talking about the logo on the podcast. No, it isn't. They've got me to dress up as initially Alan Partridge and now I'm slightly played by that photo. Peter goes on to say, however, one question about your face. Can you raise both eyebrows or just your right? Is the photo a mirror image? Now, I can raise both eyebrows together and one eyebrow independently. More on that as we get it. Coming up on today's episode, the TV show Who Do You Think You Are? They won't be able to make it soon if they cancel the census. We look back over more than 200 years of asking the people of Britain, where are you now? Before that, today's columnists Carol Lewis and James Marriott on why nobody can build homes properly. And we'll take a look at what we learned this week. And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can listen to me live on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. That's politics without the boring bits, weekdays from 10. But first, as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that if you get David Cameron and Keir Starmer together, the lads, lads, lads banter is off the charts. You got any tips for him, Lord Cameron? Plenty. What might they be? Get a plan. But we've got a plan, he'll be pleased to know. <laughs> Great. We learned the truth about Peter Mandelson's dip of choice. People said that when I was seeking the selection in Hartlepool, I went into a Hartlepool fish and chip shop and mistook uh, mushy peas for guacamole. It was a completely apocryphal story. Yeah. It's easy for him to say. We learned from comedian Al Murray why the SNP's Stephen Flynn always puts his hands in his pockets. Uh, that's also an old stand-up uh, uh, confidence trick. Yeah. That if you put your hands in your pockets, it makes you feel relaxed. Oh. So you then relax on stage. Making a note of that for my tour. We learned that Yvette Cooper's had another one of her weird dreams. The Home Secretary is just wandering naked round this chamber, oh, waving a little oh, treaty oh, as a fig leaf to hide his modesty behind. I admit he doesn't have much modesty to hide. We learn that Lindsay Hoyle does not like watching. Whose line is it anyway? Can I just say, we don't use props in this house. And I will certainly ensure that if you do need reminding, I certainly will. We learn that Keir Starmer has a totally, a new totally implausible explanation for why he told everyone to make Jeremy Corbyn Prime Minister. I didn't think the Labour Party was in a position to win the last election. That's all right then. Uh, we learned that Rishi Sunak really loves his new slogan. We have a plan, it's working, and with him we would just go back to square one. He doesn't have a plan and it will be back to square one. He has no values, no conviction and no plan. It is back to square one. It's he working and with him we would just be back, back to, to square one. And we learned that nobody, nobody... Nobody should laugh at Lee Anderson. The Labour lot was all, all giggling and laughing and, and taking the mick, and I couldn't do it in my heart of all. No laughing. No, please, no laughing at, at, uh, at Lee Anderson. And please, don't read my column tomorrow and don't laugh at Lee Anderson. The Columnists. And as ever on a Friday, we are joined by James Mack. James, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well. I'm beginning to wonder whether all these ancestor things 
have a bit of the tone of, you know, everybody is eventually related to Genghis Khan, if you know, go far, <laughs> go far back enough. Everybody's grandfather this printed the Lenin's leaflets. If we're doing, so if we're doing the census enough. and going all the way back and looking at your family tree, there is a point, because the same thing happened when Danny died, didn't it? When he did... Who yeah, it's like on who do you think you are? Everybody is related to the royal family. Yeah. So that, I'm going to say, yeah, I'm a descendant of Genghis Khan. So, yeah, Highly you, evident in my have, personality. Have you got any <laughs> actual family claims? No, claims no, Mary, it's completely boring. Is it? Yeah. Not even the chain of hotels? Well, maybe that would, be, but I, if I discover that, have you never do... looked into that? You not got a lay claim to a? No, my dad does have a Marriott hotel um, dressing gown, uh, dressing gown, but that's like stolen, um, stolen. But that's just, um, <laughs> but that's the only family connection to Marriott hotel chain, sadly. Uh, Carol Lewis is here uh, because uh, Indian Night's not here. Hello. How are Hello. you? I've not seen you for ages. I'm very well. Do I'm you well. have any extraordinary family claims to fame? Sadly not. Although I was tempted to lie once in John Lewis when they asked if I was related to the family. But I didn't. I told the truth. I'm not related at all. <laughs> <laughs> what would have happened if you'd said yes? No, I, no, it's stupid, isn't it? It probably would have just given me the discount. There's no way I could have proven it. Is there a family discount? Well, you've ended, there's a guy called John Lewis on Twitter who yes. always gets tweeted out about the Christmas advert. So you could have ended up like him, bombarded he, with Twitter messages. Because he's got the... Um, at John Lewis. Actual at John Twitter Lewis. handle. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, every year he gets... But then he replies to them all, doesn't he? It's like an annual... Tradition. Yeah, he sort of, well, he's sort of become a bit of a micro-celebrity out of it, so it could be exploited. Very I good. should have got mm. the at Marriott handle. But. Yeah. I think you should look into that. I think you yeah, can, I'm going to explore I can it. See you running a hotel. Yeah, me too. Um, like faulty towers. <laughs> now, uh, Carol, um, we talk quite a lot on the show about why why is a country we can't build anything? You know, if it's HS2 or it's roads mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can't have the property editor of the Times here and not talk about building houses. And tell us what's happened in Cambridge. Um, yeah, so there's a, a development. There's a lot of developments around Cambridge because every time politicians want to announce something about building, they say build something in Cambridge. There's thousands and thousands of homes because there's built lots of high techy, sciencey, laboratory type jobs there. Yes, and lots of half finished building sites. Uh, Darwin Green is one of them. Uh, they've got a problem on the foundations on some of the houses that have been completed, so they're having to demolish them and start again. This isn't a one-off. Um, what was wrong with them? We've something wrong with the foundations. Right. I'm not quite sure. But I mean, yeah. dodgy foundations, pretty major. Yeah. We've had a few lately where developers have had to pull things down either because they didn't match the the application to the planning authorities or because they've got a fault. There was one in I think South East London somewhere where water had been dripping through the cladding. Or I'm not sure we've got more shoddy homes than we've ever had. I think it's always been a problem. Mm. We've always had a shoddy home problem. I think we're more aware of it since Grenfell. I think developers are probably more aware of it too, aware that they can't get yeah, away yeah. with it quite so much. But um, we spoke not long ago too. You know when you buy a new home, you go around and you write a list of little things that need sorting out. Snagging. Yeah. Um, and it can be things like scuff skirting boards, a little chip, but it can also be big things. Mm. And you should employ a company to do it rather than just go around yourself because you'll miss half of what's mm. behind the scenes. And uh, do, do you want to guess what the average is? What, how many snags? Uh, how many snags on a new build home? Oh, James, what do you think? Uh, I, I'm, this is way beyond my pay grade. I think <laughs> I mean, like 10? 160 is your average. Average? Average. It's quite shocking, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But since Grenfell... Because that's like every, yeah. it must be like every house in the street has yeah. got all the same things on with it. Also, we're not talking big houses. Most yeah, of the yeah. houses in this country are quite small, yeah, the new yeah. builds. So, I mean, it's quite shocking. We've got to do something about it. I think the industry knows they've got to do something about it. And what, is, is it because the economic... Because the thing that obviously, obviously baffles me is that a house is worth far more than the cost of the bricks and the, you know, the literal... It's the land, mainly. So it's the land. Mm. But what profits are the house builders making? Is it because we... Madly, the, the value of the land means that you can't build good quality houses, or is it because the the construction companies are being the middlemen who are the ones who buy the land and bid and build the house are basically trying to trying to maximise profit? I think all both of those arguments. Yeah. The, the developers would say their margins are too small, yeah, um, because of the land prices. Um, there's also the well, argument. They're the one driving up the price of land, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you'll get, you can go around in circles on that one. Yeah. There's also the new build premium is pretty hefty. Um, and then when we saw help to buy, we saw another premium on top where, where you know, first time buyers would have been charged 22% more on top of the new build yeah. premium. So, 
you can go What's around the circle. The, the you pay more for a new build than you would for the same house if it were second hand. Do you? Yeah, by quite a long way. What would you rather live in, James? A new build or definitely nice old... second hand? Something nice and old and Victorian would be mm. my dream. Yes, yeah. I mean, there was a survey uh, by the Chartered Institute building not long ago. A third of peak of home buyers wouldn't touch a new build. Mm. I mean, that's quite worrying when we're looking at trying to build more houses. I mean, Labour's saying three hundred thousand. If no, if no one wants to buy them, we've got a problem. We need to get our our act together. And they often look so ugly as well. That Cambridge development, I mean, it was quite good it got demolished because there's horrible <laughs> um, little windows and yeah. big blank expanses of red brick wall, which I think is, you know, quite, you see everywhere where there's quite new... Boxy. Just, why yeah. can't we make it nice? I know, you sound like Prince Charles well, now, but I you've know, got I a point. Well, I actually went to Poundbury uh, maybe, you're, maybe, you're dis- maybe you're descended from Prince Charles. <laughs> yeah, well, fingers crossed. <laughs> I, went to, I went to Poundbury, his model village, last year, expecting to kind of scoff a bit and say, mm. oh, this is all very twee. It was actually lovely. I really liked it. Mm. So um, why can't every developer be a Poundbury? Is it because, actually, part of the appeal is that all the, f- the houses have got fancy bits on and they're all spaced out, and actually, if you want to maximise your money, that you just can't do it? Or is it just... Because it is weird how when you drive around and you see new developments, yeah. you just look at them and think... Just all look the same. They're horrible. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm definitely of the opinion they should all be going more towards having proper design codes and looking like something you'd actually want to live in mm. and actually hopefully you know, being built properly as well. There's a new homes ombudsman and um, a new homes quality board that were set up in the, in the wake of Grenfell, but 20% of builders haven't signed up for the quality board and virtually no one who buys a Nubian home knows about the ombudsman. It was set up to deal with 500 cases a year. I think last time we contacted them, they were dealing with 12. So it's about awareness as well. But it's also amazing that a whole industry's cropped up of companies that only deal with drawing up lists of snacking. You wouldn't buy a new car with an except, oh yeah, there's only 160 things wrong <laughs> yeah, with it. Yeah, exactly. The wheel fell off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I bought a new yeah. suit, but uh, I've identified... <laughs> I've identified 160... I'll hire a company to... Yeah, you know, they have to pay a company to come in and say, uh, yes, we've discovered that the, uh, the bottoms of the trousers have been sewed up, so you can't get your feet out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's appalling. It's appalling. That's interesting, though. That's interesting. But anyway, it's, I was going to say it's a great story, but um, you just build nice houses. Anyway, uh, let's move on, because we've got everyone's always saying, why can't uh, the politicians just sort it out? And normally, particularly loveys, there's nothing worse than a celebrity lovey slagging off politicians. And then uh, yesterday, Mariella Fostrop uh, was speaking to the Doctor Who writer and the co-creator of Sherlock, and he's got a play on right now called The Unfriend, Stephen Moffat. And she was asking him about this, and I thought, oh, he's just going to go on about politicians. But actually, he said that uh, politicians in the UK get a bad rap. And I always find it quite funny that we are so instinctively cynical that we say, oh, they're all idiots and they're lazy. I don't think most of them are idiots, and I don't think most of them are lazy. I think the job is undoable. It's uh, intractable. And it is an insane thought that that job would be better done by all the satirists and the comedians and the showrunners and the writers and all the people who slide them off. They, they couldn't do that job. They couldn't do one day of that job. And I was listening to that, James, and I just thought, what a refreshing take. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good take. It's something I always feel in, so in two minds about, because obviously in Britain especially, we have such a long history of unbelievably scurrilous, rude and vicious political satire which isn't itself a good thing and, you know, it means that we don't, you know, worship our politicians in the way that sometimes, you know, the, the French president can walk around acting like a god. But then there is definitely a downside where if we just always believe that politicians are stupid and we always think they're idiots and incompetent and corrupt, then I think that does begin to corrode our political culture a bit. And, you know, we can see now we have problems making people actually want to do that job. Mm. And you can kind of see why, yeah, and it's does satire go too far and end up you know, making you know, making us not get the right people wanting to be politicians. But it's good that we're cynical, though. I mean, as you said, it's it's good. And also, you don't want to watch sitcom about someone just working really hard, do you? <laughs> <laughs> just... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> How do you it, make that work? The thick of it would have been a very different show if it was just sort of people just sitting around having meetings going, great, well, that's going very yeah, well. Really competent. good ideas, yeah, executing yeah. them competently yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. agreeing with each other. Yeah. yeah. I don't but think politics has ever worked like that. But I suppose it's the it's the... The problem with famous people who've got a platform for being able to tap dance, using that to then say, well, it's just obvious, isn't it? Like, I don't know why they sound like this. <laughs> no, I, I want more <laughs> celebrities like that. But do you know what I mean? Do, yeah, I come... And the, it's the so, sort of, well, I just don't understand, George, why they don't... Um, and twi- I mean, things yeah, like social media Twitter. just so encourages people to go on and say, oh, this is terrible, stupid, you and know, whatever, minister. Are, a billion likes, loads of followers, you're a campaigning hero, when actually you're just somebody who's... And like, actually, the conversation we've just been having about housing, yeah. there are... 
you know, it's really complicated. It is, and then we've got this rotating door of, you know, 13 housing ministers mm. in 10 years or whatever. I mean, I mean, they, they didn't even get a chance to do the job. But it's the sort of thing that someone will come up with, you know, a celebrity will say, well, it's not obvious, isn't it? They should just all, all the houses should look, well, actually there are issues, and then if you do, you know, if you, if you try to address one thing often, yeah. you, you create a different problem, and then you try to, you know... Yeah, uh, it's, much, it's much more complicated than it seems on Twitter, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was interesting. I wouldn't want to be a Prime Minister. No. And could we build a house, sitting here with our opinions about house building? But I did try to lay some bricks once. Really? How did I, it go? I don't think it's a house you'd want to live in. Are they still standing? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think they were taken down immediately. <laughs> Demolished <laughs> and, and then they got, then got the snagging people uh, in. But it was interesting. Is it, and actually, next, uh, next week we've got another exit interview with Robert Goodwill, who's a Conservative MP, who's standing down. Uh, and I've been really enjoying it because we're sort of speaking to politicians you don't often hear from. And actually, he t- talks about the things he did you know, when he was in Brussels and regulations on recycling electronic components or when he was a minister and they you know, changed rules on things. And you just think that, you know, that there are people, you know, quiet, non-showy yeah, people. Yeah, well, in the post office scandal, on. Lord Arbuthnot, you know, yeah, exactly. badgering yes. away yeah. to just keeping on and sort those right things thing. out. So, yeah, that stuff does yeah, happen. Exactly. Yeah. Very good, very good. Yeah. What would you do with 25 million euros when an Austrian heiress is trying to give away her inheritance? Uh, a vocal advocate for global wealth taxes as well. Uh, Marlene Engelhorn joins us. Hi, Marlene. Hello. Uh, great to have you with us. So, uh, what? why are you trying to give away all your money? I'm not just giving it all away. I think we are touching on, the, on, on spheres of wealth in which I was just born, like... Just because of my birth privilege, I'm super, super wealthy. And I get to make decisions that affect people who don't get to be part of these decisions. So I think there's not just a private problem of how to spend money, but it's a public problem of how to distribute wealth to begin with. And since I'm not taxed on my wealth, there's no inheritance tax in, in, your, in uh, Austria, there's no wealth tax in Austria, um, I have to make it happen on my own because government won't go and get it as it could and should. And so I'm distributing it via a civic assembly. So how, just, just tell listeners how, how it is that you came, to, came about this inheritance. What does your family do? Um, my family sold uh, a company. And in this company, a lot of people worked. And they never saw um, any of that, uh, of the gains of whatever they produced, right? That was distributed to, to my family because they owned it. Sold it 90, 1996, 1997. Böhringer Mannheim is what the company was called, pharmaceutical company. And it made billions in sale and um, made my family incredibly, incredibly rich. Which, like you said, you've then inherited through the uh, fortune of birth rather than um, but that you've done yourself. So what are you now looking to do? What's the, what's the plan? So um, it's already like uh, rolling. The team is doing all the work. I have to say they don't even get enough attention for that. So thanks for the team. And so basically 10,000 addresses were um, picked at random from the central registry of all addresses in Austria. And we had the Foresight Institute who handles all the data apply that we get this sample and we had to prove that there's legitimate interest. And they granted us that because the Civic Assembly for which we needed this data was supposed to discuss distribution, wealth distribution especially, and whether it was um, just or not just and what this meant and um, what, how it affected politics, society, economy and what to do with that. And so we got this sample of 10,000 addresses, 10,000 invitations went out and then people can respond to that. You will expect 5%, the Institute uh, says, which would be around 500. Uh, according to a message I got from the director of operations of uh, the whole project, we've already cracked that number. <laughs> and then they um, will get a survey where we collect, like not we because I never get to see any of that data, but uh, um, the researchers get the data to, um, around migrational biography, gender identity, um, income, um, also attitude towards inequality. Like if you think it's in, uh, if inequality is unfair or fair, so that also that is representative of Austrian society. Um, and then 50 people at the end will build the, the good council is what uh, the translation of the name is. And they will um, have to discuss all of that, create ideas and get a budget of 25 million to distribute along the lines of this task. And the only criteria to get an, ad, uh, an invitation is you're at least 16 years old and you live and are registered in, in Austria. And so they, they, they then will decide how the money is distributed. Exactly. They get to decide what to do with this money. Um, the only 
limits to that decision is it can't be anti-democratic, it can't be anti-constitutional, it can't be violent or threatening or harming life in any way, and it can't be for profit. So, um, yeah, and how they get to decide. How much money will you be left with at the end of this process? It, uh, I, I, I will, we'll see, because um, I also pay for everything, like all of the expenses... Um, the, the people on the council are paid because this is very important work that they're yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, so obviously they're going to remunerate, they're going to be re- remunerated. Re- I hope I say this right. Yeah. It really comes out hard. I, 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 yes. They get paid. You, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is very important. Yeah. What do you think of this, Carol? Yeah. What do you think? I think, I think it's a good idea, actually, because it's, it's getting people to decide how wealth is redistributed. Mm. Presumably they can't just all vote to spend it on a holiday. Um, and it's exactly. important. And I can, I can see um, Marlene's standpoint. She, she hasn't worked for that, work, mm. for that money. She might feel differently if she was an entrepreneur and she's worked her butt off to get the money. But I can see her, her point that you know, she shouldn't have 20-odd million. Presumably she's keeping, keeping some from herself. She's not leaving herself destitute. Yeah. And, and she's got an opportunity here. Marlene, what do you do? Do you, do you work, is the plan to give away everything you inherited and then carry on working yourself? Well, I'm currently working in terms of all the public speaking that I do, the advocating work and um, the organizational work of Tax Me Now, the initiative I co-founded to um, advocate for tax justice as rich people in that particular role. Yeah. Um, I don't get a salary for that. So I'm I'm going to transition into, into working. It's going to be interesting. I only keep a little bit of, of my inheritance to make sure that I get a smooth transition. Um, and then I will redistribute everything else as well. Like um, it's not just the assembly. That's one of the main tools because it's the major, absolute major part of my wealth that they get to redistribute plus the, the whole budget for, for paying for everything. But everything that's left after that is also going to be channeled into redistribution. Um, the sooner the better because um, we need change in, in our structures and systems because they always develop, society always develops. That's the only constant is development and to to fund the people who are frontline and who do the work, it's really important, and not to sit on it. And then eventually I'm going to be one of the 99% who are uh, working and paying their taxes. And I think this is finally my uh, my ascending into democracy out of this soup of wealthy, feudal, um, grab-on-my-wealth um, <laughs> kind of class. Well, it's, it's, it's amazing. James, if you had 25 million euros, would you give it all away and get a proper job? No, I don't think I have the moral strength of character. I think it's amazingly commendable. Um, especially because I, I was reading some statistics recently, actually. I think giving from very wealthy people is declining over the 21st century. And we used to have this paradigm of billionaires like Bill Gates who would secure their reputations by you know, giving away tons of money to, to charity. And now it's people like Elon Musk who want to build rockets and stuff. So I think it's against the grain in a good way. And also, you know, one of the criticisms of Bill Gates is that one man has this enormous power to choose whatever he wants to make better in the world and then enact it. But yeah, the sort of democratic thing is kind of amazing. I mean, or I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing it. I what would, would you do with it? Gold, you know, lovely gold bathroom and all the sort of stuff. On that subject, somebody's just said, a listener has just sent in a message uh, saying, do you have a gold toilet? And what's the most expensive thing you've ever bought? Um, my my toilet is not something that I decided on because I rent my flat and so it was in and I'm happy I have one. I'm happy that there is all this societal development to bring this into flats. And, yeah. yeah, very good. But it's um, not most gold. Most expensive thing. Um, I recently paid for, um, it's called a climate ticket. It's it's very, very expensive. It's 1,100 euros um, and it grants me to go on every public transport in Austria whenever, wherever, all the time for a whole year. Um, and I think it's a very, very cool ticket for um, then travelling climate-friendly. I can afford it, so I paid for it, and I'm very, very happy to have it. Marlene, I can't help thinking you're basically just a much better person than I am. So what's the process of all this? When, when, will it all, when, when does this process end, or, or at least the people, you know, some of the money start being paid out? Um, so they start, the, the sessions, um, six weekends for these people are going to be starting in mid-March, and the end is expected at the beginning of June, and it's going to be publicly um, uh, told to... Like, what is the word? There's going to be a public uh, press yes, conference. Yeah, yeah. yeah, announced it's the word. It's going to be publicly yeah. announced what's going to happen with the money, and um, then this decision, whatever it's going to be, a, a fancy Excel spreadsheet, a paper, <laughs> I don't know, 
uh, it's going to be, well, I don't know, um, I don't get to decide. So it's going to be assigned and um, handed to the people who are in charge of then going to the bank and distributing that money because it's not going to be on my account. Yeah, I yeah. put it on an account and then trust it with three people who then, as the three of them, will... Um, distributed uh, according to what the assembly decided. Fantastic. Carol Lewis and James Marriott there and you can obviously read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk Up next, the life and times of the census. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. Who do you think you are? As I know from personal experience, if you want to find out where you come from to climb up your family tree, you need the results of the census. Uh, let's jump into the actual census proper. And um, can you see third from the top with the red asterisk? Yeah, Edward Milden. Then can you see the next word? Convicts. Your Majesty's prison in, in Portland. As the records show, it was born more than 200 years ago. And thanks to the census, we know how many Jedis there are. So a Jedi is a person who uh, follows the ideology or the idiosyncrasies of the, the Jedi Knights in the Star Wars universe. That a suffragette hid in a parliamentary broom cupboard. And when she was found, it meant that she could say on census night, her residence was the Houses of Parliament. And has helped to record the changing lives of us and our ancestors. But is it now about to register its own death? Yes, a consultation is underway on scrapping the census, the survey we do every 10 years, which tries to count everyone in the country and ask them about their lives. Well, the Sir Ian Diamond, the UK's national st statistician, wrote in the Times last year, we've reached a point where a serious question can be asked about the role the census plays in our statistical system. Uh, in a moment, we will hear from a genealogist. Uh, we'll also find out what I happened, what happened when I went down to Parliament, where there is that cupboard where Emily Wilding-Davidson uh, hid. And we'll, uh, we'll dive into my own uh, family tree. But let's speak to someone who uses uh, the census, well, all the time. The Times data editor, Tom Calver, is here. Tom, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? So very good, very good. So it's every 10 years. England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland have, have different ones. But it's, So it's a consultation about the future of the one in England and Wales, where the assumption is if that one goes, the others will follow. Is is the census, because it's quite old-fashioned, that every day everyone fills it, you know, on the same day everyone fills in a, sense, uh, a survey at the same time. Is there still a place for it, or should it be scrapped? Yeah, I mean, thanks for having me on. I, I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, cast your mind back to 1801 when the first census happened, and there basically wasn't much information or data out there at all about, like, who was living in Britain, what kind of work they were doing. Um, and so suddenly the census comes along, and, and all of a sudden the government has all of this very useful information. Now, of course, our world is absolutely teeming with data. And I think the, the important point here is that you don't have to wait 10 years at a time to find out what's going on with the people of Britain. For example, if you change jobs, the government knows pretty much straight away. If you have to join an NHS waiting list, uh, that, that data is recorded as well. Um, in the 21st century, a lot of people sort of say that, you know, getting one census, one big dump of data every decade just looks a bit, well, inefficient. 
are there um because i suppose the 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 other thing is that knowing that we are definitely going to get all that data because obviously at different times different government departments pick and choose what they do and don't collect and we might start finding gaps in it having that once uh, every 10 years maybe if we we could do it more often, given technology. But having that, okay, this is an actual snapshot of how many people are here, where they live, what they do, their family independence and all of that, is that does actually have some use. Yeah, it is incredibly useful. Um, I mean, people like myself, I mean, it's it's almost like Christmas, but if Christmas was once every 10 years, it's like a, a mega <laughs> a Christmas. really mega Christmas, yeah. Yeah, uh, but I think, you know, the census isn't perfect. I mean, pe- the reason we should care about it is, you know, it's, it's obviously very important for governments to know exactly, you know, who lives where for things like planning home building, planning hospitals, planning GPs, all, all of that stuff matters. But, you know, ultimately the census is only as good as the people filling it in and, and the kind of questions that they're being asked. I mean, in 1871, for example, people were asked if if, if they were a, a lunatic, imbecile, or idiot. Uh, Thirty thousand people said that they were. Um, so, you know, throughout the census <laughs> history, think, I, I think this is a question we should still be asking now. Well, perhaps perhaps you're right, but you know, I mean, throughout the census history, changing the questions has sort of framed people's responses to it. So it, it's far from perfect. I mean, a, a great example in the recent census is how um, in the 2021 when they asked about national they changed the order of the answers. So they moved, uh, the top answer used to be English, now it's British. And all of a sudden, the number of people recording that their nationality was uh, English plummeted uh, in, in that 10 years. Now, some of that fall might be genuine. What's probably going on, actually, is that people just pick the first answer they see. So, yes, uh, there are some problems with, with, with the sort of the, the human design surveys. And, you know, they're only as good as the people filling them in as well. And there was also controversy in the last uh, census over the uh, the gender question for the first time they asked about if people had a different gender to their sex at birth is the gender you identify with the same as your sex registered at birth and there's there's been some debate as to whether or not people have really understood the question and to, so as a result how useful the answers are yeah, exactly. All, all of that stuff really matters. I mean, I, I think moreover, though, you know, in terms of what will actually replace it, uh, you know, there are several suggestions that we could almost move to this sort of Norway type model, right, where you you kind of have this live population register, um, where all these kind of data sets on things like taxation benefits, but also your age and sort of personal information are, are linked together. But I think, you know, the problem with that is that what the census has become very good at recently is asking exactly those kinds of sort of identity type questions that the, the, the really interesting bits of the centres. So the things about, as you would just say, gender identity, but also nationality, also about your sort of attitudes to other people. And, you know, it, it's sort of a, a worry that actually you, you wouldn't get such a, an interesting census if you just restricted it to the boring government data that yeah, it has yeah, anyway. Yeah. There's a sort of social aspect to it rather than just the sort of numbers, because, you, you know, they use... Use the numbers for how many houses do we need, or what's the you know school intakes and that sort of thing. That is the information they probably can get from elsewhere. But there's the social side, and I suppose actually it's not clear that if we got rid of the census, would researchers in a hundred years' time be able to build a family tree in the same way where you can go, okay, that you know that they lived there and they had three children. That's the name of the child, and then they were there, and then we can you know and, and being able to build up that picture of history might not be so easy from sort of disparate bits of NHS databases. Yeah, I mean, I, I think probably what they would have to do is to tie it all together in yeah, some yeah. way so that it would be easily searchable for, for researchers. And I, I personally, I think, you know, that the demand for open, access, accessible data will only grow over mm-hmm. time. So I don't think we'll see the end to the sort of, you know, who do you think you are style family research. But yeah, it, it is a worry if all of a sudden you, you lose that sort of exciting uh, sort of chunk, that sort of fixed point in history yeah. where everything is recorded. Tom, really good to see you. Uh, Tom Cover there, the Times' data editor, taking us through how the census is used now. As you were saying, it dates right the way back to 1801. Uh, when it first began, it was a means of assessing how many men of fighting age were available in the country to serve in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, since then, it's asked uh, different questions, and some of them have come and gone, but the very act of the census has also become, at times, a very political act. One of the most memorable moments in the history of the census relates to a broom cupboard in the Houses of Parliament. So I popped down to Westminster to take a look. heading away from Central Lobby and down the steps into Westminster Hall, which is where uh, you'll remember the, the Queen Lane State and uh, uh, lots of uh, very famous people have uh, addressed both Houses of Parliament. It's just off to one corner 
down from Westminster Hall is St Mary's Undercroft, uh, the chapel of Parliament. And it's tucked away in a corner is a broom cupboard uh, which made history in the census in 1911. Now, as we've been discussing, every census, the main job is to try and capture all the information of where everyone is and who they are and their lifestyle at that exact moment on census day. And on census day in 1911, there was a protest from suffragettes. Uh, it's much the thing about the fact that they couldn't be registered as uh, head of uh, their own household. And so, Emily Wilding Davison, on that night, in 1911, she crept in through Westminster Hall, into the chapel of St Mary Undercroft. In fact, a, a, in a corridor, there is a, a broom cupboard. And she hid in the broom cupboard. And when she was found, it meant that she could say, on census night, her residence was the Houses of Parliament. And she was, for those purposes, the head of the household. Fast forward then to, what, 1991, around 1991. And uh, Tony Benn followed up with another bit of, if not illegal, certainly controversial behaviour. But to mark this act, he put up a plaque on the door. And the plaque reads, In loving memory of Emily Wilding Davison. In this boom cupboard, Emily Wilding Davison hid herself illegally during the night of the 1911 census. She was a brave suffragette campaigning for votes for women at a time when Parliament denied them that right. In this way, she was able to record her address on the night of that census as being the House of Commons, thus making her claim to the same political rights as men. Emily Wilding Davison died in June 1913 from injuries sustained when she threw herself under the King's Horse at the Derby to draw attention to the injustice suffered by women, by which means was democracy won for the people of Britain. And then underneath that, uh, there is a, uh, a further message which says, Notice placed here by Tony Benn MP, uh, with a message, I must tell you, Mr Speaker, that I'm going to put a plaque in the house. I shall have it made myself and screwed on the door of the boom cupboard in the crypt. In fact, ten years later, he uh, told the House of Commons, Tony Benn, I've put up several plaques, quite illegally, without permission. I screwed them up myself. One was in the broom cupboard to commemorate Emily Wilding Davison, and another celebrated the people who fought for democracy and those who run the house. If one walks around this place, one sees statues of people, not one of whom believed in democracy, votes for women or anything else. We have to be sure that we are a workshop and not a museum. And so that is how a broom cupboard just off Westminster Hall here in the House of Parliament uh, made history when it came to the census in 1911. And in fact, after going down to Westminster, I rediscovered that actually Jeremy Corbyn uh, claimed that he carried the toolbox and helped uh, Tony Benn uh, put that plaque up. Now, from uh, well, from the sublime to the slightly ridiculous, we're going from uh, suffragette broom cupboard to this. Are you a Jedi? It's an important question. Uh, thanks to the census, we know that in 2001, 390,127 people, almost 0.8% of the total population of England and Wales, stated their religion as Jedi, surpassing Sikhism, Judaism and Buddhism and making it the fourth largest reported religion in the country. Uh, the Charity Commission does not consider Jediism a religion. Uh, it still claims uh, more UK adherents than Scientology. Well, let's speak to a Jedi and find out just how many there really are. J.H. Tapley, a Jedi Master, no less, joins me now. Hi, Jay. Hello there. So, um, tell me about being a Jedi. And I, I, I want to preface this with saying that some of my closest family members are huge fans of Star Wars uh, in a way that I'm not. So, sell to me being a Jedi. Okay, so I would say it's a basic survival instinct in people kicking in. Because even though it was something like movies, if there wasn't a grain of truth, people wouldn't resonate with that. You know, people would not believe complete lies, something completely made up, which means that there is something that speaks to them on a deeper level. And with this kind of numbers, that has to be something quite strong. 
And so I would say right now, if you look at the world, there is a lot of uncertainty going on and the world is becoming a more threatening place, I would say. And so people naturally want to feel empowered. They want to be connected with something greater than themselves. And where the old religions were fading them in some regard, let's say they were less applicable, maybe they were just not as clear, maybe they were not as practical in everyday life. They washed someone apparently just like them, wielding reality, bending reality, using the power of his or her own mind. And it seemed so close to home because we are not just purely physical beings. We're both physical and quantum spiritual feeling beings. And so, of course, that truth resonated with people. And I don't blame them for that. So what would be the, what, what's the sort of the, the, the life rules that you would live by if you were a Jedi? Okay. I would say put your mind, your spiritual part first and your physical part second. And now, even from science, we know that our mood and our mind influences our body, influences our health, influences how we make decisions and ultimately live our life. So putting your emphasis on your spiritual part and also on something that is greater than you, on the force, God, light, makes your life experience a lot more empowered in many ways. Uh, and I've been told you've got your your lightsaber there with you. That's right, I do. And you, can I you do. do tricks? I have two lightsabers. You can do tricks with them. Uh, yes, I do. But also, I was just going to. <laughs> These days, they make them sing, and I don't believe that weapons should make. Oh, there we go. So there we are. Look, yes. you, don't, you don't think they should? Well, that's the whole point of a, of a, of a lightsaber, isn't it? Is it supposed to make, make a noise like the films? Oh, they should make the buzzing sound, yes, yeah. but not the singing sound. No, not the singing sound. Um, yes. So uh, I used to run a lightsaber choreography uh, club in London, and uh, it was just something that people really resonated with. I teach meditation as well. I've been a spiritual teacher of 20 years, and so... I just see how people in times of uncertainty, in times of turmoil, naturally develop that affinity to the divine yeah. inside them. Because what do you do? You know, in many aspects, the world has become a darker place. And so back then, back in the time, you could believe that authorities, the government perhaps yeah. look after you, but it's no longer so. So what do you do? You want to feel protected. You want to protect your family. So you learn to use the force. You learn to build a uh, bend reality instead. Now, every decade since 1801, people across England and Wales have taken part in the census, which underpins everything from funding services to the calculation of economic growth to helping plan schools. Well, how important is it? And obviously, one of the other great things about the census is you can build your family tree with it. The genealogist, Elsa Churchill, from the Society of Genealogists is here. Hi, Elsa. Hiya, how are you doing? I'm very good. You must blooming love the census. It is the most amazing resource because from 1841, every 10 years up to 1921, you get a snapshot of your families and the communities they're doing, finding out what they're do what they're what's going on in their lives. And it's so dem democratising. Everybody should be in it. Uh, and what what's, what? just give us a sense of the sort of thing we'll find. Well, listen in a minute to what happened when I found out about <laughs> my great-grandfather. The sort of things you can find just from the, the, the core information of the census. Well, I mean, the core information is, is from year to year, they give you their names, ages, and from 1851, the relationships, their occupations. And then as the government wants to know a bit more about what's going on in your lives, you might find out how many rooms they were living in. And, what, and, and because in 1901, they were interested in the social conditions and the living housing conditions. And then by 1911, they might ask how long the, the, the couple, if they were married, had been married and how many children they had had and how many children might have died because of they were interested in child mortality. So these snapshots of what what you know, maybe statisticians want to find out. I'm actually thinking, gosh, my ancestors lived through that. Mm. They, they, those are the conditions they're in there. Okay, uh, stay there, Elsa, because I'll come back to you in a sec. But this is what happened. 
not long after Times Radio launched, actually. We got uh, lots of presenters had bits of their, their family tree uh, looked at. Uh, this is the genealogist, uh, Simon Pierce. We're going to have a, a look at the life of your great, great, great grandfather, Edward Milden. Edward was born in, in the early uh, 1820s. Some sources say 1820 in, in Bishop's Ninton in Devon. And the family largely stayed in a uh, close radius, you know, going to Molland and to, to Nalston. I'm showing you here an extract from the 1851 census. So anyone that's doing family history, these are a great source for building out the lives of your ancestors. Where were they living? Their occupations? How old were they? Where were they born? And can you see here that we have um, Edward, head of the household? So He'd already married his wife, Elizabeth, uh, being leaving about 1843. And here we can see them. I believe they're announced them by this point. Uh, Edward's a farmer, agricultural worker, of course, you know, a huge part of the, the industry in this area with their children, a few servants there as well, and visitors in the household. It's just, this was helping me to kind of establish some foundations. Who, who was this person? Where were they from? And the, and the same very much in the 1861 census. You know, you see them here all you know, on the same page with their um, neighbours. Sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to read, but it was um, the next census. I jumped forward into 1871, expecting to find the family in a similar area. I was quite surprised at what I found. Maybe you'd like to read out the middle section for us. Is it Portland Dorset? That's right. It's actually a Portland convict establishment. Oh, Paul, oh, that's <laughs> Portland convict establishment. What what does that mean? Was he in jail? Well, if you see the census, so I've, um, uh, let's jump into the actual census proper. And um, can you see third from the top with the red asterisks? You have Edward Milden. And then can you see the next word? Convict. In Her Majesty's prison in, in Portland. Do we know why? Yes, we do. So anyone who's researching ancestors that have had brushes with the law, we need to look in the criminal records. Really, really interesting collection. So... Can you see the first entry here? Yes. for 1864. This criminal record has uh, offences, the uh, court proceedings. So can you see the middle, the conviction in the middle? Sheep stealing. <laughs> and here's the sentence on the right. And he got 12 months for that. But then you said, what was, the, what was that time, the gap between this conviction and then being in prison? We're going to come on to that in a moment with the timeline, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of context around what's happened here. So anyone researching anyone in, an ancestor in the criminal registers, uh, the newspapers are amazing for a little bit of context. A bit of call reports, exactly, the local papers. That's what we, that's what we exactly. like. Exactly. Now, I've highlighted a few sections, very, very long articles, so I picked out the main points that I'll summarise. Would you mind just reading out the red section there for us? Okay, so it says, Exeter Crown Court Wednesday, sheep stealing at Molland, Edward Milden, brackets, on bail, an elderly man, was charged with having stolen a ewe sheep, the property of Mr. W.M. Elworthy at Molland, in the month of August or September last. Mr. Turner prosecuted and Mr. Carter defended the prisoner. Elderly is a little harsh because he's in his early 40s, but, you know, it's the wording of the, of the times. We have another section here explaining what happened. Basically, um, Edward's being accused of, of stealing a sheep. He has taken a sheep from um, a, a farmer presented it to uh, another party, asking them if they could look after it for him for a small fee, pretending it was his, essentially. But can you read the bottom section here from his lordship? This is the judge That's speaking. right, yeah. yeah. So the, his, his lordship went carefully through the evidence, advising the jury to direct their attention to the charge of stealing without reference to that of receiving, knowing it to be stolen. The jury found the prisoner guilty and his lordship sentenced him to 12 months imprisonment with hard labour. Story doesn't end there. We know that um, he was given 12 months in 1864, but was still in prison in 1871. So what happened? Another entry in the criminal registers. Yeah. A uh, little difficult to read his sentence, but can you see what that says? Larceny by servant. So stealing from your employer. That's a serious crime. Now, he's already he has a previous conviction, as we know. And can you see here the, the sentence he was given? Seven years. So that's how he was in prison for so. Well, that is so, so. Stealing from your boss is much worse than stealing somebody else's sheep. I have a newspaper article with a bit of detail if you're interested here. Well, here we are. Stealing coal at Tiverton. Edward Milden, Anne Palfrey, and Thomas Palfrey uh, were charged with stealing a quantity of coal, the property of Mr. Bede and a gentleman living near Tiverton. Milden pleaded guilty. He was in the employ of the prosecutor, and a short time since he was sent to Tiverton for some coal with a horse and cart. On returning with his load, he was seen to stop at the house of the prisoners a west a wayside cottage to take something from his cart which he handed in at the door so he was he was off to buy coal for the boss but he took him out of someone's house instead uh, both the prisoners denied their guilt but the jury convicted them milder was sentenced to seven years penal service the others got two months in prison each with hard labor i mean he got a much tougher deal out of that even though presumably they were all in on it but he was the one who was diddling his boss and he had a previous conviction, which didn't help. So 
tough, tough time for Edward. It starts off in, in Pentonville in 1868 after being convicted. Then 1869 is sent to Portland Prison in Weymouth. And he was stone dressing, cutting up blocks um, for the uh, Portland Breakwater Fort. Tough work. Edward was um, discharged uh, on license in 1874 for relatively good behaviour and returned to Devon. I mean, returned essentially to, to, to normal life, if you like. And I, I, just finally, I have him here in the 1891 census. You have Edward Milton. He's a lodger, so he's not living with his family. And his wife sadly died in the 1860s. His children have gone their own way. He's a farm labourer back in, in, in Nelston. So you wonder how many people back in the village knew of his, his conviction of his, his past. That was Simon Pierce from Ancestry, uh, who who looked to the darker side of my uh, family. There was a, there was a war here, I was told as well. Uh, we still uh, we've still got Elsa Churchill, a genealogist here. Elsa, um, somebody's just messaged in. Trevor says, please can we ask, can we ask how we can look at the census info? So it's the one thing doing the the the, the survey itself. How and when do we get access to it? How can right. we do that? The the records become available after a hundred years. And the original records are housed with the National Archives for England and Wales and the similar authorities for Scotland. Um, the records themselves, because they're so important, have been made available on all of the genealogy subscription websites. So the big sites like Ancestry, Find My Past, The Genealogist, etc., etc. So if you've got a subscription to those, they're, they're available to you. Or you can get you you can access them through your local library, or maybe even through a library like the Society of Genealogists in London. That's for all the censuses, apart from ninth, the most recent one, which came available, um, the nineteen twenty one, is still under license exclusively to find my past because they work with the National Archives to do all the work of conservation, digitisation, and put my, and then making it available online. So um, they have the exclusive the right to use it for a few years before all the other big sites get it. So the censuses are pretty available on, online through lots of different ways and you can search them by name and place and to identify your family um, living together and find out, you know, as, you, as in your family, you know, they're not where you expect them to be, they're in different places, in your case in prison. In my case, they weren't even in the country because by, by, I realised when they, in 1851 they disappeared because they'd been transported to Tasmania. So we all have our, our rogues and vagabonds in our family if you dig deep enough and it's the skeletons that keep the stories alive and make it much fun to, to start looking. He's, yeah, it is absolutely. And it's, it's, it's such a, um, it's a fascinating thing. It's a weird thing when you just sort of, so obviously you never met these people, but having that blood tie and suddenly it sort of brings some um, history to life as well. Uh, Elsa, it's lovely to speak to you. Thanks so much for coming on. Elsa Churchill, genealogist from the Society of Genealogists, uh, taking a look at the census for us. The Office of National Statistics consultation is ongoing. So as and when they make a final decision on the census, we'll no doubt talk about that in the future. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget, if you're a Times subscriber, you'll get a bonus episode every Saturday. Just link up your Times account with your Apple Podcast subscription. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.